Your friend, your foe, your choice. That's our, that's our sermon series we're in. We started talking about Abraham last week. Abraham, growing up in an idolatrous community, they made idols, they worshipped idols. Those idols had never spoken to him. Those idols had never offered him friendship or companionship or relationship. And one day he hears the voice of a God that offers him direction that offers him a future, that offers him hope that his life can, that he can be more than he ever thought he could be. And so at that ripe old age of 79, he takes a walk with God and he never came back from that walk with God. And then we see that he's identified as a friend of God. So in this series, what we're trying to do and what I'm trying to tell you is that you have a friend in God. Doesn't mean your life's going to be perfect. In fact, I will guarantee you it won't be. There will be problems. There will be suffering, just like there was a lot of suffering for Abraham. A lot of difficult days. But Abraham never let anything come between him and God. I want you to know, and what I'm trying to tell you in this series, is that you have a false god, many of them, many false gods, that will pose also as your friend, but they're really your foe. And they're there to destroy you. They're there to reduce your life. They're there to minimize your life. They're there to steal, kill, and destroy in some way or another. And so we're going to jump over this morning to two verses, one in the Old, one in the New Testament. Isaiah 48, uh, 46, rather, verse 8 through 10 says, Remember this, keep in mind, take it to heart, you rebels. Remember the former things, those of, uh, those of long ago. I am God, and there is no other God. And there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, which is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand. I will do all that I please. So there we have it. God says, I'm the only real God. And, like we talked about last Sunday, and I hope you, you weren't here, I hope you'll go back and watch that. It's on our YouTube channel. You can go through the website, the app, or go right to the YouTube channel. I hope you'll go, or, or the podcast, I hope you will go listen to it, because I think it will help this all to make sense for you. Then we're going to jump over the New Testament where Paul is also talking about God versus our idols because today's sermon is called Pocket Gods and I'll explain that in a minute. So then about eating food sacrificed to idols, we know that an idol is nothing at all in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, little g, and many lords, little l, Yet for us, there is but one God, the Father, for whom all things come and for whom we live. And there is but one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom whom all things came and through him we live. Now I'm calling this sermon Pocket Gods. I don't know if you've ever heard that term before. But um, Pocket Gods are these tiny figures that will fit into your shirt pocket or your jacket pocket or pants pocket. Uh, This is uh, historically we know that uh, pagans and those in the world of idolatry have always had pocket gods. All these tiny figures that what you're seeing now will explain. And is a, these are Hindu gods that you can, you can purchase if you go online. Uh, there's several places. If any of you are interested, there's several places you can purchase these. And you can carry them in your pocket or your purse. And this has been a common thing throughout history. Uh, through, through biblical history and, and on up to present time, people have always had these little gods that they put in their pocket. They're called pockets. Now, it's not to be confused with a video game called Pocket Gods. 
And any of you ever played the video game pocket? I'm sure, Chris, you must know about pocket game. It was a, back in 2009. Back in 2009, it sold 4.2 million copies of, um, I guess you call them copies. It's on, it was use your phone. You would use your phone. And uh, I think it got, I think it got uh, canceled because it was, it was about going and killing pygmies. And uh, I think it got canceled uh, as being racist, which it was, obviously. Uh, so, anyway, don't confuse this with those pocket gods. So you see the pictures of this, the, these little gods, and, and uh, they represent various things. Uh, I think that this, one, uh, th- this one represents the removal of obstacles. This, this little god, is, is, he represents several things. But I remember one of the things is, oh, there he is, removal of obstacles. And there's the goddess of prosperity, and give me some more guys, and we'll tell, go through the rest of them. The divine force, I guess you need some divine force in your life if you need the God of knowledge. These are little pocket gods. Now, you probably don't have any of these in your pocket, but we all have, we all have gods in our pocket. We all have symbols of self-interest, bringer of pleasure, sources of security or pride, joy, comfort, not a problem. We all have them, by the way. We all have these potential gods in our pockets. The question is, do you pull it out and worship it? Do you pull it out and elevate it to the stature of the Lord Jesus Christ? Does he have a unique place in your life? And, and I'm not trying to steal something from you today or take something from you. This is the way to have real life. These, these false gods, these pocket gods, these, 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 these little ob- objects that we worship and things that we adore and we place before God do not end up bringing peace into our life. In fact, they're the very basis for our anxiety. They're the very basis for our fears. They're the very, they're very basis for our feelings of frustration. They're the very basis for our destruction because they, um, they eventually demand sacrifices of things that you really love. They demand that you sacrifice people and things that you love. People sacrifice their health. They sacrifice loved ones. They sacrifice the uh, members of, uh, fellow members of the church. They sacrifice sometimes their children for these idols. So they're not good. Benjamin Cain wrote an article entitled, What is Godlessness? Why Atheism is Not Enough. He begins the piece with this statement. Listen. Superficially, atheists are godless, meaning they have nothing to do with gods or with spirituality, religion, and the like. But atheism is better thought of as an accusation leveled by members of a particular religion against another, since that's how the term was originally used. Atheists were just foreigners or unbelievers in some other creed. In ancient Rome, Christians were atheists. And some And once Christianity became Rome's official religion, pagans became atheists. Atheism was a relative term, so neither Christians nor pagans were atheists in the sense of being perfectly godless. They were non-believers in certain gods, but they had their native religious practices, alternative myths, theologies, and gods they worshipped. In other words, and part of the premise of this whole series, is there are no true atheists. Everybody worships. Everybody adores something. Everybody lifts up something that is their ultimate goal in life. We all worship 
and trust. Number one, we all worship and trust someone or something. Since the beginning of time, humans have used objects of their own creation, symbols in nature, uh, mythical deities for worship and wisdom. We've always done it. Uh, the, the advent of science and technology has made the worship of object, objects and, you know, people around the world, they worship tree stumps and they create little things that they, they bow down before or they, they invent stories of mythical gods out in the universe. But science and technology has made the worship of objects or things in the natural world or fabricated mythological creatures. That's, that's much too unsophisticated for modern people. But can there be a question that we have not squelched our instinct to elevate people, places, things, ideas, obsessions to the level of worship? The, the urge to worship is not, by the way, not really a conscious thing. It's something that grabs you, something that appears to you, that you admire, and you don't really have some serious self-awareness but you let that admiration shape you. Most of us aren't aware of what is actually competing in our hearts for God's supremacy and Christ's lordship. Hey, let's get something straight now. I, I tried to make this point in the beginning. I'm not out to rob you of those things that bring you joy. I'm out to preserve them for you. That's my goal. Whenever you elevate the wrong things to the level of worship, in some sense they defile they become defiled, and they start to rob you of joy instead of giving you joy. Even things like my children, whom I love, and I'm supposed to love, if I elevate them to the point of worship, if I elevate my, my children to the ultimate thing in my life, I will probably begin to, in some way, act destructively toward my children. If I elevate them beyond what is normal love, normal affection, I will become, I will become possessive of them, I will become controlling of them. I will, I will become jealous of them. All kinds of terrible things happen. Or, or what often happens is I will, I, I will put them on a pedestal that they cannot handle. And so that I, I, will, I will not give them the correction, as, especially as they're younger. I will not give them the correction they need because it's my little idol. I can't, I can't be spanking my little idol, you know. I can't be giving my little idle time out or whatever, I, whatever way that I manage my, my little darling. You know, <laughs> hey, let's get something straight. We all have it. There's only one true God, though, and only by worshiping, adoring, and trusting him will you have the best life possible. Daniel M. Wright wrote in a, in, a, in a summary of Tim Keller's book, which is the best book I can think of if you want to explore the subject of idolatry. It's a book, Counterfeit Gods, which is uh, tremendous. And here's what he writes, and I want to get, share this with you this morning. The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. He's summarizing the book for you, so if you haven't read it or, or aren't going to plan on reading it, uh, this will help you. An idol, he said, is something we cannot live without. We must have it. Therefore, it drives us to break rules we once honored to harm others even ourselves, in order to get it. Anything in this life can serve as an idol or a counterfeit God. Anything, anything can serve as an idol. 
Anything can serve as a counterfeit God, especially one of the things I thought about is, you know, you do something like I just did, which take a sabbatical, and you really, you really don't even have all the facts together as why you should do it, but somebody advises you to, and this comes up, and this comes up, and you come to this. You never have all, and I'm going to make this point a little bit later in the sermon, but you never have all the facts you need to make any decision in life. Everybody that's married, you know that's true, right? You didn't have all the facts. <laughs> faith, man. I talk about faith. That's an act of faith, right? You didn't have all the facts. So sometimes it's after you do something that you, then you're able to go back, oh, here's why I did it, you know? Like you really knew before you did it. <laughs> So I, I was thinking about it. You know, one of the things this sabbatical did for me, it put my potential idols in their place. Preaching can be an idol. Standing up here and the feelings I get from you and, and the nice messages I get from you and people who are very complimentary, you're very wonderful like that to encourage me. And I appreciate that. Don't tell me you don't mean it all. Please. I can't handle it. I thought about that. You know, I needed that. I, I needed that. I needed, I needed to have decisions made that I didn't make. Now, I didn't, it, it, it did not cause me a lot of angst. I didn't have a bunch of angst. I didn't have a bunch of angst about not preaching. I, I was worried I would. And I was very grateful. I said, I remember thinking, God, I, I, I'm thankful that I don't feel this angst about, oh, I'm not preaching. I, I could go off on that, on and on, but I'll, I'll, I'll stop. You get my point. You get my point. Idols are good things that become God things. Idols are, are um, important parts of our life that become ultimate. And one thing God, one thing I need to be normal, I mean normal in God's eyes, is I, God needs to be the ultimate in my life. Jesus needs to be the ultimate. And if anything or anybody else is, I'm off. I'm out of balance. I'm not right. And I'm not going to do right. I'm not going to feel right. I feel right when I'm in right relationship with God. Amen. That's what this sermon's really about. Uh, I use the term pocket gods because modern idolatry is hidden and more subtle than ancient idolatry, even though they had pocket gods back then too. We have, some, we have little idols of ambition, financial security, being accepted, being trendy, being sophisticated, being in the one-up position, we can make an idol out of retribution and getting, getting back at people who hurt us. We can make an idol out of being in the one-up position, well, like I already said, we, of being right. Some people make an idol out of being right. Of being, you can make an idol out of being in charge. Uh, you, you can make an idol out of getting credit for your success. There's relational idolatry I've already alluded to, of our, our children, our spouse, our family heritage. I mean, some people will fight you over their family heritage. You know, I, I, love, the, I love the old story of the, the attorney who, who, who had a very proud family he was dealing with, and he, was, he was, was, was going through their family history. And then he said, I have discovered, he found out, by the way, that their grandfather had been, uh, had, had been a murderer and been a, 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 electrocuted in an electric chair somewhere. And so he knows, he, he knows the family pride would not do well with this news. So he said, uh, I 
I, I have to inform you that your grandfather occupied uh, uh, the uh, chair of electricity in a major institution. <laughs> we all have that thing in our pocket that can go from being good to being God. You can make an idol out of anything. I already said that. An idol, here's another statement from the book. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give you what only God can give you. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would hardly feel worth living. Whatever has become the most important thing in your life is your God. I remember being in Israel many years ago and I was a very young man. It was like, I was like 20 and I was with this group of people. And uh, a man in our group either had his wallet stolen or lost, I don't know. But, you know, this, is, this was many years ago. I mean, we're talking about 40-something uh, 40 year, 40 years ago when um, now everything, you know, in the cloud and it's not as difficult to recover these things if you lose them. It's not as difficult to cancel your credit card. I, 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 identification is not as is, is, is easy. You, you go to the airport and uh, it's not... It's not it's, it's difficult to show that you have a ticket and all that stuff. Well, he lost his wallet. We're in, the, we're in Israel. We're in Jerusalem. And that night, we all go to the upper room and have a prayer meeting in the upper room, what they believe is the, the spot, Solomon's portico. And I look over, and this guy's both hands up, tears streaming down his face, worshiping God. And I remember as a kid thinking, that guy's got something I want. The ability... He could, he could have, he could have, he could have just had a stink face for two days because he lost his wallet, or someone stole his wallet. He goes, he got a, he, I'm, I'm stupid. I lost my wallet, or these people are corrupt. Instead, he was worshiping God. That is the, that's the, that's the litmus test. That's God's lie detector is if you worship Him when you lose something, and you still love Him, and you worship, and you still have joy. So think about it. Everything that man worshiping God, everything ab about him, I'm assuming his sincerity, of course, it said everything about him, right? So secondly, not only, are we all, uh, not only do we all worship worship-based believers, but we're all faith-based believers. Th there's this idea that religious people are faith-based in their beliefs and their assertions, while everyone else is uh, of following facts and science. <laughs> That's very incorrupt. First of all, the Christian, Christianity is not merely based on myths and ancient narratives. The track record of biblical foretelling is truly remarkable. Abraham was told his family would become a great nation. You ever heard of Israel? <laughs> Daniel accurately prophesied the three empires that would follow him. They were the Medes, the Persians, and Greece. I don't even know who's going to be the president in 2024. And he was able to predict three empires ahead of him accurately. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies foretelling the arrival of Jesus. It was prophetically foretold that Israel would be scattered to the four corners of the world and be regathered and reconstituted as a nation. Now, history records all kinds of societies and nations 
the ancient Incas, Inca Indians and others who disappeared to be no more. Normally when a culture is scattered to the four corners of the world, they do not regather and reconstitute. Especially being a tiny little speck of sand in the midst of multiple nations that want to drive them into the sea. You're on, you're on very solid ground intellectually if you're a Christian. Don't let anybody tell you otherwise. A gospel, I say this, a gospel-saturated and scripture-immersed Christian may be dismayed, but will seldom be surprised by current events. I'm not surprised. Any current event. I'm, I'm dismayed by a lot of them, but I'm not surprised. It's all in the book, man. It's all in the book. Read the word, man. Read the word. Get your, get your nose in Scripture. If you, only, if you only have time for one, one literature to, to, to study and read, make it the Scripture. I'm telling you. If you get a chance like I do, I like to read a lot of things, a lot of books. That's great. But if you only have time to read one thing, read the Bible. Secularism and humanism, which is what the world around us, that's the word for it, secularism. Secularism has become my religion. Secularism and humanism cannot be solely based on facts, reason, and science. Our, our beliefs aren't totally based on science, reason, and fact either, okay? So I'm not saying, I'm just saying, for, for that to be so, for, 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 for the person who denies God, for, that, for, for them to be totally based on facts and reason and science, for that to be so, one would need to have all the facts and precisely know all future results of anything they did, and they never do. It's not possible to know all the facts. I don't care to anything you want to talk about. David Brooks, who is a secularist himself and writes for the Atlantic and other publications, and he wrote this article in the New York Times a few years ago called How to Build a Better Secularist. And this is really interesting. I want you to hear what David Brooks said. Secular people have to fashion their own moral motivation. It's not enough to want to be a decent person. You have to be powerfully motivated to behave well. Religious people are motivated by their love for God and their fervent... Thank you. <laughs> Religious people have to be powerfully, powerfully motivated to behave well. Uh, you, you have to be powerfully motivated to behave well. Religious people are motivated by their love for God and their fervent desire to please Him. Secularists have to come up, and he, he's, he's trying to coach him. Secularists have to come up with their own powerful drive that will compel service and sacrifice. In other words, in other words facts are not enough. We've got to have a spiritual motivation. Back in 1906, uh, a, a guy named... Uh, William Temple Hornaday was the director of the Bronx Zoo. And he had formerly worked for the Smithsonian Institute. And it's a long story. It's a very interesting story. Uh, how that he came across this um, uh, pygmy from Australia named Otto Benga. Maybe you've run, followed this story. How many of you know about this story? Have you ever heard of Otto Benga? Well, it's, a, it's a very interesting story. Otto Bigma was a, 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 a primitive-seeming guy 
from Australia. It's very, it's very sad. The story is very sad. Uh, uh, explorers had gone in and killed his family like they were animals, and they brought him back as a specimen because they had all bought into the Darwinian idea of, uh, of uh, the origin of the species and evolution, right? So they felt they had found the missing link in Autobinga. He was a pygmy. And they actually put him in a cage at the, at the Bronx Zoo. They put him in a cage next to a chimpanzee, an orangutan, I'm sorry. I don't want to get my animals mixed up here today. Very important. They put him next to an orangutan, and 40,000 people in 1906 came to see this example, this shining example of Darwinism in real life. Here's a transitional being who's transitioning from being a monkey to a man. Now, you're horrified, aren't you? I hope you're horrified. It, it was a bunch of Baptist people who came out and protested and said, this is wrong, this is a creation of God, and just this just boggles the mind. Because why did they do that? Because they were horrible, terrible people? Well, no more horrible and terrible than all the rest of us, I don't think. They did it. It was a Darwinian leap of faith. It was a leap of faith. Charles Darwin travels around the Galapagos Islands, and he sees that the wool on the colder island was a bit thicker, and he sees that the finches' beaks grew longer, but they had to forage for food within the rocks, and a few things like this. And he wrote The Origin of the Species that, yes, now I've figured out how we got here. And everybody put their faith. Everybody say the word faith. Everybody put their faith in a few facts and a whole lot of imagination. So it's a myth. It's a myth that we can live without faith. Anybody that will go down the highway at 80 miles an hour and start to slow down only 300 feet from the exit is a person of faith. You believe those brakes will work, right? Finally, we're all informed. Now, now this is, I, I hope we can, I hope you can stay with me today. Because th this, this is where it gets very real to me. We're all informed and influenced by unseen spiritual powers. We're all informed and influenced by unseen spiritual powers. Now, let me give you, I want to give you uh, three passages of Scripture that make a connection that probably you haven't made before. And I'm not saying you, you're, you're, you're not smart or anything like that, but you probably, you, maybe, you probably never thought about it, okay? If you thought about it, you probably would have come to the same conclusion I did. But let me read the Scripture, and then I'll tell you, th th then we'll talk about the connection. Don't let anyone capture you with empty philosophies and high-sounding nonsense that comes from human thinking and from the spiritual powers. Underline that in your mind. Spiritual powers of this world rather than from Christ. I don't know if you realize it or even agree with it, but I believe there are spiritual powers 
that direct our thinking, try to direct our thinking, that try to influence us in various directions. I believe there are spiritual powers that try to control nations. Every time a culture stops believing in God, they, begin, they do begin to believe in the devil because he shows up so powerfully. Let me read another verse. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 18. They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods to gods they had never known. Now, they didn't know they were sacrificing to demons. They thought they were sacrificing to their idols. To new gods that had come recently whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the one who gave you birth. Now let's go to one more. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 through 19 and 20. Verse 19 and 20. What I'm trying to say, I'm saying that food offered to idols has some significance. Uh, I am saying that food offered to idols have, have some significance or the idols uh, are real gods, question mark. Am I saying, I, I knew I was leaving out a word, <laughs> I wasn't reading right. Am I saying that food offered to idols has some, some significance or the idols are real gods? No, not at all. I am saying that these sacrifices are offered to demons, not to God. And I don't want you to participate with demons. Now what did I, what did I call this series? Friend, foe, your choice. What Paul and the Old Testament writers are saying to us is if you are an idolater, you are actually messing with demons. That demon spirits are connected with those things that you elevate above God. That's why when Jesus was tempted, when Jesus was tempted by the devil, the devil tried to get him to partner with him. It wasn't so important what Jesus did or wanted or got. It was important that he partnered with the devil. That was what was important to Satan when he tempted to, oh, uh, oh you, you like food? Make those stones into bread. Oh, you would like for people to, to worship you? Which, of course, Jesus did want that. Throw yourself off the temple and people will worship you. Uh, oh, would you, oh, would you like to have the kingdoms of this world? Of course Jesus wanted the kingdoms of the world. That's why he came to earth. So he could take back the king. Would you like the kingdoms of this world? Well, just bow down and worship me, and you can have the kingdoms of this world. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. Not because he didn't want those things. Not because he didn't plan on ha He planned on having all three of those things. But he was going to have them in the will of God. He was going to have them in God's timing. And no matter how much he had to suffer, he was going to be, an idol is simply that thing that you will disobey God in order to have. It's not the thing. The thing is not the problem. It's the fact that you're willing to disobey, and I'm willing to disobey God in order to, have, in order to have it. That's why Joshua said in Joshua chapter 24, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. Pretty simple, guys. One of the least understood relationships of the world is this interplay between our idols and our demons. And remember all those things I mentioned in the early in the sermon. When we elevate feelings, things, relationships, or conditions for our happiness, they become, listen to this, they become animated and entered into by demonic spirits. That's why you can't, the thing that you thought you could control, 
you can't control it. You start to let your rage build up within you. You thought you could control it. Why can't you control it? Because you're dealing with powers that are beyond you. You're dealing with powers from the dark forces of the underworld that you can't handle. You, that's, why, that's what, remember, some of you years ago, remember Sister Rents, we called Sister Rents, Esther Rents, said sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and make you pay more than you want to pay. Because you, you will not be able to control. You let jealousy begin to get, you, you let a desire for retribution and getting back with somebody, and, and you, can, you think you can control that? You think you can control it? You, 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 think, if you, you think if you start um, involving yourself in, 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 in sexual activity and promiscuous sex and, and pornography, you think, I can control this. You know, I, I, can, I can stop doing this any time I want. No, you won't be able to. Nobody can. That's why we call them addictions. And addictions will rob you of your soul. God doesn't say, I want to exclusively be your God because he hates you. God doesn't say, I want to be number one in your life. Jesus doesn't say, I want to be your Lord because I just want to make somebody miserable. No, Jesus says, I want to be your Lord because I'm the Prince of Peace. I'm the Prince of Peace. I'm the Redeemer. I'm the one who will make your life worth living. I will, I will be the one who will make you so powerful that nothing can dominate you. Nothing can bring you under control because you're under the control of the Spirit. You know what's really at stake here? Your inner peace and tranquility. That's what's at stake. You will not be able to control the level of rage, lust, fear, anxiety, fretting, or worry, or relational conflict if you have elevated one of your pocket deities to the level of worship, your pocket God could be all those things, competition, control, money, perfectionism, sex, pleasure, acceptance, even children or spouse. The minute you elevate one of these things to the level of ultimate importance, demonic spirits start to manipulate you. Giving your idols to God probably doesn't appear as you've been trained to think it is. Giving up your idolatry, you know what it really is? It's giving to God your worries and your cares. Ah, you can do that, can't you? You thought we were going to have an exorcism. No, no, we don't, we don't need to have an exorcism for most of you. <laughs> if you will just give God, the Bible says casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. Hallelujah. Yeah, yeah, you need to be responsible. You need to take, I mean, don't abandon your kids because you're worried you're going to be an idolater, okay? Take care of them, right, Christy? Take care of them. Feed them and feed them and help them get an education and all that. But take them off. Take them from the realm of worship and put Jesus up there. He, he said, I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Hallelujah. Here's what it says. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7. Give all your worries and cares to God, for He cares about you. Stay alert. Watch out. No, notice the connection. Stay alert. Watch out. Your enemy, the devil, he prowls about looking like a roaring lion, looking for someone to devour. Who can he devour? 
He can devour someone who's elevated something to the level of worship that only Jesus should have. That's who he can devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. Man, I, I just felt a release of the Spirit in this room. And I want to pray a prayer for you. I'm going to invite Christy to come and close. But I want, you know, let's do it this way this morning. And, and I, I don't, you don't have to participate in this, by the way. It doesn't mean you're not doing it because you don't participate. But I find, I found through the years, if I will take some physical action, it will, a lot of times it will bring that release that I need. You know, whether it's walking down front or raising a hand, something where I can look back and say, Satan, I did it, okay? Remember. <laughs> or if I just try to do it in my heart, maybe. So some of you can do this in your heart, it's fine. But I want every person in this room, you, this is going to be courageous, bold. You don't have to tell anybody why you're standing. I want everybody in this room that says, I know I have some pocket idols that I have taken out of my pocket and I've started to pet. You, you sweet little idol, you. And I want to give it to God today. I want that freedom that you're talking about, Pastor Phil. That's what we're talking about. Tell me freedom. Right now, stand. Some of you, and this is not true in all cases, but some of you do not feel the presence of God, and that bothers you. And sometimes when I talk to people who can't feel God, this common complaint is I, I can't feel the presence of God. A lot of times I find out that person has an idol that they've given their heart to. They've given their heart to something else. So, now, yeah, you can't feel the presence of God when you've given your heart to something else. But if you will smash your idol today, you might be surprised that you start to begin to emotionally feel the presence of God because God's not being blocked by your idol. Let's, I'm going to pray for you. Father, in Jesus' name, we smash our idols today. Lord Jesus, those things, those affections, that war with the Spirit, those things that, 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 that hurt our lives and those things that minimize us, that, 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 that what is stolen from us. And we, we're going to take back what the devil has stolen from us today. We pray for liberty and peace and that every person standing will right now experience a manifestation of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name.